Amen. Thank you for praying that song. I invite you to be seated. Release the children through grade four as we take a look at Acts chapter two together today. Amazing passage of scripture as we continue to look at the idea of the church being focused on its mission. And even as we look at that as our theme as we go through the book of Acts, we look at the idea of the church being focused on on its mission. It's been said, and I believe it's true, that it's not so much the church has a mission as it is that the mission has a church. And and you could be like, "Mm -hmm, what does that mean? Okay, so it's not so much the church has a mission as it is that the mission has been given a church. Because the mission... The mission of God, God is a missionary God, and He reaches to make Himself known. He longs to experience the worship of every person, and so He reaches out to make Himself known. That's been His mission, and now, as we look at this passage today, it will be the, the sermon of Peter that, that really initiates the church, and so now the mission has been given a church. And so, while yes, it is our mission as well, it's the mission that preceded us. Today, the title of the message is Preach It. Preach It. And um, in some ways, as I've been preparing this message, it's occurred to me that I, I feel almost like a news anchor who, who listens to a, a political speech and then comes and tells you what that person meant to say. You know, and so I've been really praying that that's not what I do because the message that Peter preaches stands on its own. Obviously, 3,000 people came to know the Lord when he delivered it. So in some ways, I need to get out of the way of the passage, but there's things that we can learn in it as well. As I thought about this idea of preach it and, and even the song we sang, oh God, may you reveal the glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses that Christ is Lord. So there's this idea that each one of us needs to be preaching that. So I thought of a song that I used to sing all the time when I was a kid, and, and it's called A Sermon in Shoes. How many of you remember that song? Yeah, because yeah, you heard it last night. <laughs> but, yeah. but all right, so it's... I, you may not be aware of this, but before there were projectors and technology... When we sang songs, we used to hold up posters with the words on it. Remember that? And this particular song, uh, the, the shoes, the, the poster board was cut into the shape of shoes. And then they were put together with the rings, you know. And, and the person who was leading the song would flip over the pages, okay. And doesn't that sound like fun, right? <laughs> All right am I showing my age? I guess I am. But this is an amazing song, and so I want to sing it for you, and then listen carefully, because you'll be singing it again after with me, okay? Do you know, oh Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? Do you know, oh Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? Jesus counts upon you to spread the gospel news. So walk it and talk it. So live it and give it. So teach it and preach it. A sermon in shoes. Amen? All right. So let's, let's sing that together, shall we? Do you know, O Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? Do you know, O Christian, you're a sermon in shoes? 
Jesus counts upon you to spread the gospel news. So walk it and talk it. So live it and give it. So teach it and preach it. A sermon in shoes. Oh, is there a powerful truth to that song? We think of Romans 10 where it says, how will they hear unless someone comes and tells them? It's that idea that, yes, Christian, you're a sermon in shoes. And our banners, in a way, show that, right? Where, where the shoes come and we gather together and we come together so that we can know Christ and we know the truth of who he is, but we do that so that we can go and make him known. And we become sermons in shoes. And so what does that look like as we look at this idea of this message from, pre, from Peter and we begin to think of what does it mean for us to be able to preach the gospel message. This is the fourth Sunday of the month, and on the fourth Sunday of the month through this year, we're taking a few moments to just pause and focus on the persecuted church. And, and this, this week we're going to be looking at Syria, and we've got a flag here because we're adding Syria to our flags on the wall because we've started a new partnership with a ministry in Syria, Ananias, Ananias House, that that goes to the, and helps the churches to feed those who have been ravaged by the war that's taking place in Syria. Now, Syria borders Israel up on the northern, uh, northwest part of Israel, and so it's a, it's a place of, of deep persecution, and the church is under persecution as, the, as well there. So I'd like for you to watch a video, and I'm showing this after I release the children. Um, when we look at videos about the persecuted church, as we continue to do that, we're going to be watching some of these that have some graphic aspects to it. And so this one is, is one that has some of that. So if, if you've kept your kids with you, I'm fine with that. But just so you know, that there's some things you'll have to talk about with your kids after we watch this. We were praying for revival, believing God would do a big work in Syria. Then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes, churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country, but we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, in the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill. Where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. Still others say, we are like living in hell. One day, while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, Will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me. And I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, Are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. 
The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted, and together we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while. we should just close our eyes and when we open them we will be with Jesus am I a good mother do you have to tell my children such things I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe we will be safe that he is in control even during the bloodshed during the killing, he is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria. for Syria from the prayer guide from the Voice of the Martyrs and talks about what this means and I'd encourage you to read that. At 2 o'clock this afternoon we'll have a special prayer time for the persecuted church but also in your bulletin there's a list of 10 ways to pray for the persecuted family and I'd like to ask us to just stop right now where we are and just pray out loud all of us across the room just begin to pray these 10 points and we'll just take a couple minutes and and we'll all pray for the persecuted church. I don't, I don't know about you, but as I continue to watch and become more and more aware of what's, what's happening around the world, I become more aware, aware of how important it is that we pray. So right where you are, just be praying out loud. God, even as we partner with this churches around the world, these persecuted churches, and we, we look, Lord, of the of the ways to pray, and when I look at this list, I'm, I'm not sure these are the things I'd ask for if I was being persecuted. For boldness, for, for doors to be opened, for, to forgive the, pers the persecutors, Lord. God, we, 
We think of the church in Syria specifically today. We pray that you'd be moving in power amidst those who have been so boldly proclaiming your truth, those Christian brothers and sisters who have been by you, God, placed there. May we not neglect, Lord, the importance of our prayer for them. I pray that you'll heard our prayers this morning all across the room. And I thank you that you've inclined your ear. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. My prayer is that as a church we'll begin to get even more aware of the need for us to be raising these churches up in prayer. And so the flag, as we look at the flag of Syria, as it gets added to the wall, we'll remember the Ananias house that we're partnered with, but we'll be remembering as well the persecution that happens there. So even as we look at this the message today and the title being preach it and for us we're not going to experience necessarily the hardship that that Liana will in Syria as she begins to preach but there are hardships that come to us and so as we look at this it's important for us to see that the Holy Spirit uses the spoken message to bring repentance the Holy Spirit uses the spoken message to bring repentance and it's interesting, as I've been praying over this passage this week, and, and Lord, what would you have for me to learn, and, and what would you have me to bring here to us to learn? And it's interesting, as we look at this week, as Billy Graham stepped into heaven. I mean, when you think of someone who preached the gospel, I mean, you know, Billy Graham is right there. I mean, you know, you think of all the crusades and, and all the different people who went forward. We have people here in the church who came to know Jesus through uh, Billy Graham's crusades. And so you stop and you think about the impact he had. And for the gospel, yes, but but as well for the way that, that the culture was shaped in many ways. As, as he was proclaiming the truth of the gospel, people were giving their hearts to the Lord, and it was impacting the decisions that they made. <clears throat> and so you think of, of a Billy Graham, but then the, the next day, I, I said goodbye to my pastor, my mentor, we, Pastor Howard, who was here for so many years. And and he stepped into glory as well. And I think of him, when, when I think of this idea of preaching, yes, I think of him standing here and preaching it, but I think of all the times I was with him out, out in restaurants or things like that, and he would engage people in conversations. Maybe some of you were with him too. When he'd be there and you were having a conversation with him and someone would come up and, and he would start talking to that person. And I can't remember many times when there wasn't a point in time where he talked to them and say, what do you know about Jesus? I remember being at the Promise Keepers many years ago, and, and the person who was speaking said, if you came to know the Lord through walking forward in a church or, 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 or some sort of a revival message or something, would you stand up? And people all over the stadium stood up, and he said, thank you, would you be seated. And he said, if you came to know the Lord because someone talked to you one-on-one, -on -one, would you stand up? And there were many, many, many more people who stood up because people had engaged in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them about Jesus. 
And so even as we look at this message that Peter preaches and we see that 3,000 people come forward, we, we cannot deny the significance of the power of the Holy Spirit, but we must also realize that it's each one of us who have been entrusted with this message and each one of us who is called to preach it. And so today, as we look at this passage, I'd love for us to look at Peter's message, look at what he taught, but then ask ourselves, how can we apply that to our lives so that we can preach the message to the people God brings into our lives as well? The first thing that Peter talks about is the fact that God is in control, and that's in verses 14 through 21. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. See, there it is. He raised his voice. He didn't stand in front of everybody and, 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 and live such a good life that they could come to know the Lord, okay? And I hear people say that, and, and oh, I, I've said it a lot of times, too. I'm just going to live such a good life that, that then everybody will come to know Jesus through that. Well, no, I, I, I got to tell people about Jesus. And so Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, addressed the crowd, fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. You see, it must be spoken and it must be heard. And this comes through the Holy Spirit. And these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Powerful, powerful beginning to a message. And as, as Peter starts his message to the crowd, he speaks and they, he, he encourages them to listen. And the first thing he wants them to realize is that God is in control. God is in control. He is over all that is happening. And he, he, he comes to this passage and he says, this is that. Basically, what he, he says, when you read what happens in Joel, this is that. This is what Joel was talking about. This is what is happening. It's that which Joel spoke about. And, and as he reveals that, he's revealing that God is in control. Now, you were, last week we talked about the spring feasts being fulfilled and that this is happening on Pentecost, Shavuot, and and so in, in your bulletin, there's an insert that kind of gives a drawing of this and a, and a visual for you to hold on to. And it begins with Shabbat, Sabbath, which is the queen of all the feasts, Leviticus 23, as it talks about that, because it happens once a week. And then there's these three spring feasts that happen. And each one of those are so significant and cannot be separated from the other, these three feasts, because the, the, the uh, death and resurrection of Christ which is the fulfillment of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the first fruits, finds its greatest fulfillment in the giving of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant as, as God pours out His Spirit and puts a word in their hearts. And that happens at the Feast of Weeks, this, this first fruit of the harvest. And so this is a diagram for you to hold on to. I thought you'd like to see it. The fall feasts will all be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. And we'll talk about those when we get to heaven. Amen? Amen. 
But that gives you a picture of, of they are there, and, and remember that as they're there, they're celebrating Shavuot, uh, the, the Pentecost, and as they're there, they're looking back on Mount Sinai. They're looking back on the giving of the law because they celebrated that that would have happened on the same day. And so as they look back on the, on the uh, giving of the law, they see that, that the greatest fulfillment of the Jews coming out of Egypt and being rescued out was when they came and they received the law. The law was given to them. And for, for us now in this, in this age of grace, it's that, yes, the death and resurrection of Christ, but it finds its greatest fulfillment in the giving of the Holy Spirit, which empowers us for the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us. And so he begins by taking the people to Joel and says, this is that. And Joel is an amazing little book, three chapters, and it talks about things that have happened, things that are happening right now, things that have happened in the past, and things that will happen. And the Israelites were really good about reliving what, what Jesus, what God had done in their lives, the way that God had revealed himself in the past. And, and so as they even are there, in, as Joel starts out, there's a, a plague of locusts, and it causes them to remember the plague of locusts in Egypt. And, and so they look at that, and they remember God's hand, and they remember the power of God's hand. And so then they call on God's hand again, and it's a call to repent in the book of Joel, and and as they repent, they see the power of God again, and then God proclaims that he will reveal his power again in the future. And that's the part of of the passage that Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who has indwelt him, takes that part of Scripture and says, this is the fulfillment of that. This is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Joel spoke about. And it's happening right before your eyes. And there's more that will happen. And there will be, when Christ comes again, there's going to be a battle like you've never seen. Joel said in his, in his book that it's going to be a battle like nothing that had ever happened before and nothing that will ever happen afterwards, this great and glorious day of the Lord, when that final battle happens. And so he says, anyone who calls on the name of the, of the Lord will be saved from that. And so it's this call to the Israelites to realize that that which was promised is being fulfilled, which proves that God is sovereign and proves that God is in control. So as we look at this and we consider that Peter begins to address the crowd, the question we ask ourselves is what truths from Scripture can I help, can I use to help people see that God is in control? So as I, as I go out into and, and I begin to pray over, over people I know who need to know Jesus, as I, as I begin to pray over that, how can I be ready with truths of who God is that will allow people to know that God is in control? Because honestly, most of the people we run into every day struggle with believing that. Most of the people we run into to every day are, are just getting by, and they don't have the solid foundation of knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever our circumstance, whatever our situation, we will not be shaken because God is the foundation of who we are. And we can be confident that God is in control, that God who created all there is, is sustaining all there is and is holding all there is together and he is in control. And things don't take him by surprise. 
God is not constantly learning by watching us. God knows, and He's in control. And He knows about your tomorrow, and He knows about your 10 years from now. And He's holding that. And if you know that, I pray that it brings you great peace. But I also pray that it inspires you to be able to share that with others who desperately need to know that God is in control. That's where this starts. The next place we see that the Holy Spirit leads Peter is is into revealing that Jesus is the promised Savior. God is in control. He has a plan. That plan is unfolding. That's what this amazing and remarkable word that he's left for us reveals is that his plan is unfolding, this salvation plan that he has, and it it is within that plan that it becomes revealed that Jesus is the promised Savior. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. There it is again. Listen. I'm going to speak. You need to hear, okay? Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. I love this. Now, we're told later that that with many other words, Peter warned them. So what we have here is we have Luke has taken Peter's message and condensed it for us, given us the the cliff notes, as you were. But, But as you look at this, he says, Jesus was a man accredited by God to you, and you know that. Because you saw him do miracles. You saw him do amazing things among you. And I wonder if it's possible that during that part of Peter's proclamation to the people, if he didn't say, you remember some of those things, don't you? You remember when the woman touched the hem of, of, of his garment and was healed. You remember, don't you, when, when the roof was opened up and the man was told that his sins were forgiven? And some of you mumbled and said, who is this man that he could forgive sins? And Jesus said, well, if you're having trouble with me forgiving sins, how about if I have him walk? Stand up and walk, and he stood up and walked, and he's still walking to this day. Maybe Peter said that. There he is, right there. You know, I mean, there were probably people in Jerusalem at that time who had been touched by Jesus and healed by him. They were testimonies of the fact that Jesus was the promised Savior. It was proven by the things he did when he was among them. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, evil men, Gentiles, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So here's this man, Jesus, the the promised Savior, and and God gave him to the Israelites. He gave him, and they responded by putting him on a cross and putting him to death as if he was a common criminal. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Amen? Amen. It's impossible for death to keep his hold on Jesus. 
So he was given to them. They put him to death, but God raised him to life. David said about him, Peter says, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. So you see, it's, it's, oh, it's exciting. David, in the psalm, As he writes this psalm, and this psalm is a psalm of such great encouragement, Psalm 16, maybe some of you read it, and maybe some of you are like, yes, my my body rests secure in the hope of of God. And, And we look at that psalm and we realize the truths that it has, and they're truths that apply to us, but the truths apply to us only because it applied to Jesus. And that's what what. Peter unpacks for them as he says, you see this psalm that you've taken and you've read and you've seen it and you've taken it as encouragement to you. It wasn't talking about David because David's tomb is right there and his body's still in it and his body has seen decay over the past couple of thousand years. So it's not talking about him. Rather, it's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one because David was promised in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be a king on his throne forever. Forever. And that promised king is the one who's seated at the right hand of God the Father right now and it's Jesus. And he's there and he's on the throne and and David looked forward and he saw the day that there would be the fulfillment of this promise and completion that there would be the resurrection and the eternal sitting on the throne of the Messiah. And so Peter is telling the people, this Jesus who you saw walking around among you, this Jesus who did all these miracles, this Jesus who you thought was just from Nazareth, this Jesus was the Messiah. He was the promised one from God. He was the one who came to bring salvation to all who would call on him. He is the one who was brought for that purpose. God has raised him to life. We're witnesses of it. He's exalted and at the right hand of God. Therefore, let all Israel be sure of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's telling them, man, this Jesus is the Messiah. And I could imagine he would say to them, we were slow to get this. One of us even betrayed him. I denied him three times. We were all slow to get this. But let me tell you, it's amazing. It's him. Jesus. The most amazing thing that you could imagine. See, what is the most amazing thing that ever happened in your life? What is it that's the most amazing thing that ever happened? And you're like, let me tell you about the most amazing thing that ever happened in my life. I became a Packer fan. Like, really? Let me tell you about the most amazing thing that ever happened in my life. I got a new car. 
Let me tell you about the most amazing thing in my life. You know, fill in the blank and, and we'll talk to people about those things. But listen, the greatest thing that ever happened to me is Jesus. There is nothing better that happened. I was lost. I was bound for hell and I deserved it. I had earned it by my choices. But Jesus reached down and he rescued me. He died for my sins. He rose from the dead so I could be sure of eternity in heaven. See, I can read Psalm 16 to Howard as he's passing and I have absolute confidence that I will see him again because he's alive and I will be alive. The greatest thing that's ever happened in my life is Jesus. How about you? Maybe the Packer fan thinks, no! So how, how are we telling people about the most amazing thing that's ever happened to us? And we're like, ugh, we talked about this Wednesday night. How do I start these conversations? I, I want to tell people about Jesus, but I don't know how to start these conversations. And I've used this before. Mel, you know, you're in an elevator. You're waiting for the elevator. You push a button. Someone comes up and you say, you're going up or down. <laughs> They're going to have an answer for you. Right? It's not hard. I was going down. But then I met Jesus. Now I'm going up. And they're like, I think I'll take the next car. (laughs) I wonder. I wonder how many people are not able to say that the most amazing thing that ever happened to them is Jesus. And they're lost. And they're lost. And just like me, they're headed for an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Do I care? Do do, do I care? Because Peter, as he's preaching, he, he doesn't let us not care. Oh, I know that God is in control of my life. I know that he's in control of everything that's happening and I know that he knows the end from the beginning. And I know that he sent Jesus to die and rise again to set people free. And as they finished their 10-day prayer meeting, 10 days prayer meeting, as they finished that and as they came out of that and the Holy Spirit comes in power and, and, and indwells them and as they begin to proclaim, the Holy Spirit takes the proclamation of their mouth and he gives it power and he draws people to repentance through conviction. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction into people's lives. I can't convince somebody they need Jesus. The Holy Spirit does that. It takes a supernatural experience for you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit in supernatural power has come and made you new. He convicted you that the message of the gospel was true and that, my, and that your sin caused you to have to respond to that. 
And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, the Holy Spirit is working. He's bringing conviction into their lives. He's convicting them that, that the things that they have done have, have, have separated them from God. The fact that they have put Christ to death, they have to turn from that. And they say, what shall we do? Now imagine if, you, if you're standing outside the elevator, you push the button, you say to the person, are you going up or down? And he says, I'm going down. He said, you want to change that? And he says, sure, what do I do? And you talk to him about Jesus and they say, wow, that's great, what do I do? And you say, uh, I'll take you over to meet my pastor. You don't know, what do you tell him? What would you say to him? Peter gives us what to say. Repent. Be baptized. Repent. Turn. You see, here's the deal. Each one of us, by our own choice, are walking away from Jesus. We're walking away from Jesus. And when you hear the truth of the word of God and when the Holy Spirit convicts you, what you need to do is you need to turn around and walk back towards him. You need to do a complete turnaround. It's not just like, well, now I'll take Jesus and I'll be okay as I continue to walk away from him. It doesn't work that way. See, it's a turn. It's a repent. And that repent means to turn 180. And it means to turn back toward Jesus. It means to turn toward him for the first time. It means to turn. It means to turn and give control of your life to God. Repent. Turn and say, I'm yours, God. I'll obey anything you tell me to. And he says, okay, be baptized. And you say, well, not that. Have you been baptized? Listen, if you've come to know Jesus as your Savior, have you been baptized? Because listen, it's an important thing. Now, we understand this isn't necessarily normative, but in the New Testament, you will not find someone who came to know Christ who wasn't baptized. You will not find an unbaptized believer. And it's not that baptism adds to your salvation experience, but it is obedience. Because both of these things, repent and be baptized, are commands. In Acts 17, when Paul in Athens stands before the Areopagus, he says, God put up with ignorance in the past, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. See, it's a commandment to repent. It's not just like, eh, I see some options here. If you don't repent, you will not spend eternity with Christ. It's a command. And be baptized. I'd encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, come see me. We'll put water in the tank and do it. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Oh, there it is. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Listen, God calls, and he calls through your voice. He calls through your voice, and he calls through his Holy Spirit. He draws people to himself, but listen, he uses your voice, and you say, I don't know the words. Your words aren't what give it, aren't the power. The power is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives your words power. See, my words are just words. Unless they have the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's the same with yours. And you say, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know what I'll say. I might get scared. I might be, is there a burning bush there? Because it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Remember when Moses said, I don't know what I'm going to say. Yeah. See, God's calling you. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
the gift of the Holy Spirit. We love the gift of salvation, and we long for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this is the the renewal that comes from the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, that outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Romans 5. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8. It's the sealing of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes and seals you for eternity. Uh, deposit, guaranteeing what is to come, overflowing within you, renewing you so that you will be born again, a new creation. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Do I have a passion for the lost? God has a passion for the lost. Do I? Do I have God's passion? Do you have God's passion for those who don't know him? Do you plead with them to come to a saving knowledge? Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. But again, there were tens of thousands of people in Jerusalem that day. 3,000 were convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they came and they were baptized. So have I repented and responded? Have you? Listen, I don't know all of your stories. I know a lot of them. Have you repented? Have you turned? Have you been convicted by the Holy Spirit and has he moved into your life in a supernatural way and have you repented and received the promised Holy Spirit? If not, don't leave here today. Have you been baptized? If not, do it. An outward sign of that inward reality, a step of obedience. Can I see when people are ready to respond and am I ready to engage with them when they do? Do I care enough to plead for and with people. Do, do you know, oh Christian, you're a sermon in shoes. And Jesus counts upon you to spread the gospel news. So preach it. Teach it. Be a sermon in shoes. Oh God, that's my prayer for us, for me. Oh God, forgive me for the times that I've walked by people and I've been too busy or, or too self-focused or too prideful or too scared or too one of a thousand things and, and said I'll do it later or whatever it may be. Forgive us, God, as a church for the times that we've been focused too much on comfort and not enough on compassion for the lost. Stir in our hearts, Lord. Find us a people who are ready to to take this example of this powerful sermon that Peter preached and and to, to find out a way that we can put it on our lips so that we can preach as well. And then, Holy Spirit, what only you can do, take our feeble words and anoint them with your power. Put them on ears that are ready to hear. We plead with you, God, for those who are lost. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Numbers chapter 6. Would you please stand and hear God's good word for you?
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace as you proclaim his message. If you're here and you've never met Jesus as your Savior, talk to the person next to you. And as I've said before, if that person doesn't know Jesus either, both of you come up here. Amen. I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship. God bless you.